Your business is an asset that can support a thriving life. I believe this, and I'm committed to making this a reality for every entrepreneur and business owner who listens to this podcast. The Women Thriving in Business podcast was created with you in mind. Whether you're thinking about entrepreneurship or you've been in business for a while, this show has inspiration, information, and advice that you can use to thrive in business. Women Thriving in Business features candid and unscripted conversations with entrepreneurs, business experts, authors, and academics who can contribute to your business success. I talk with leaders who have built thriving organizations and who are willing to share both the positive and challenging realities of the entrepreneurial journey. My name is Nikki Rogers. I am a transformation strategist and the host of the Women Thriving in Business podcast. I work with women leaders to develop the mindset, strategies, and relationships necessary to thrive in business. Join me and your fellow thrivers each week on this journey of discovery and success. Welcome thrivers to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business. My guest today is Danae Shell, who is the co-founder of Vala. Welcome, Danae. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. Thank you. So let's get right into it. So Danae, tell us all about Vala and then a little bit about what got you started on your entrepreneurial journey. Sure. So Vala is a platform that helps people represent themselves in court or tribunal if they can't afford a traditional law firm which means that it's for most people because most people can't afford a traditional law firm. And we're starting with helping people stand up to their racist or sexist bosses in employment situations here in the UK. And then we'll broaden out to other areas of law like family, immigration, and we also plan to come to the States. So that's who we are. This is my first founding of a startup. I've founded other businesses before, but never quite as intentionally or... (laughs) I would say that this is the first time I've kind of roughly known what I was doing when I decided to start a business. (laughs) Background is I'm from Tennessee originally, and I did my bachelor's degree at a university that had a great study abroad, ended up in Scotland studying abroad. And then when I finished the internship, I said, could I have a job? And they were like, yeah, come on over, do your master's here. So I ended up working in the kind of intersection of technology and government, working on the Scottish Parliament's first e-petitioning system. And as I was working there, I kind of got poached into this technology company because I was a software developer and ended up working in this really small fintech company that got bought twice while I was there. And I really loved the pace and the transparency of startups Mm -hmm. and have worked in startups and scale-ups my whole career. And so when I saw this problem. My co-founder and I, you know, we were senior women in tech. We were seeing a lot of issues. When you get more to the executive level, other people come to you with their issues, looking for advice as well. And we realized that nobody could do anything about this problem. And so it felt like the right time to create something to try and solve a big problem. So you saw this problem and how did you decide this was the approach that you were going to take in order to solve that issue. So I imagine, as you said, you're senior women in tech. I'm imagining kind of horror stories about what's going on. 
And this is an industry you grew up in, right? So how did you decide that helping people with their legal aspects of it was the way that you were going to go about solving the problem and that you could make a business out of it? Yeah, that process took some time. I think the legal part specifically was when my co-founder and I were talking about a situation that was happening and I had said something like, you know, I'd really like to talk to a lawyer about it, but I don't want to have to explain the patriarchy to them. (laughs) And so one of our very first ideas was almost this idea of a easily be able to find a woke lawyer, because then if you are trans, if you are gay, if you are black, you would be able to find someone that you know wouldn't add to the problem rather than help you solve it. So that was kind of where we started. But I had worked in a marketplace business just before starting Vala. And the business that my co-founder and I worked together in was a online accounting business. What's really interesting is, you know, when you grow up in startups, you learn how to evaluate markets. And what was fascinating about this legal market, when I started digging into it, I was doing desk research, reading market reports about the legal industry. And there were so many things that reminded me of the other businesses that I had worked in. You know, this idea of a really fragmented supply with no clear efficiencies, a very large pool of unmet demand and only a subsection of the market actually getting any kind of service. The idea of maybe a marketplace kind of solving some of that And I was like, oh, I recognize these things. Online accounting software, very similar. Hairdressers didn't used to have an accountant or access to an accountant. They might have access to a bookkeeper, taxi drivers, people like that. Now, online accounting software means that they can manage their own business books. Again, if they need an accountant to check things over, that's relatively inexpensive for them. Looking at this industry, it was like, well, why can't we just do the same thing here? Like we've already built, we've already done it for accounting. Why can't we do it for the law? So that's kind of how we started to think about evaluating the market and understanding how there might be a business there. But everything I just described to you was at least a year, maybe even a year and a half of iterating, testing, MVPs, customer interviews and research. Right. I love that. There may have been a lot of folks who said, oh, yes, that's a great idea. But when you started testing it out, what was kind of the reception from those you thought really could benefit from this type of service? Mm, That's a great question, because when we first started, we abandoned that idea for woke lawyers pretty quickly. And that was because one of the first things that we realized was that the problem wasn't finding the lawyer. The problem was affording the lawyer. Mm. Even if we can make it easier to find the right lawyer for you, it, it still didn't do you much good. So when we abandoned that, we took a big step back and we just didn't come up with any ideas for a while. We just did a ton of customer interviews, jobs to be done style interviews. And what we focused on was that user experience. We sectioned it out into three main jobs from our research. The first job is really people saying, you know, I need somebody to tell me if this is legal. Like, did what happened to me break the law? Help me label the problem in a way that means that I can take it forward. The second job turned out to be, you know, help me decide what to do. Help me judge the ROI. Should I do something about this? Is it worth it? That's the big question that people ask. And then the third job is, you know, help me get justice. Help me do something. Mm -hmm. Take action. And so we played around with all kinds of type form pages, Google ad campaigns and things like that for parts of that journey. So we registered isthislegal.co.uk and offered people £39 to read an email and tell you if you thought you had a case, for example. All these little things and started to get a sense of 
where people were engaged and where they weren't and how they understood the value. Where it really started to make sense was when we got into this idea of, we started working with this charity in the UK called Pregnant Then Screwed. They're amazing. They're a maternity discrimination charity. (laughs) They're so amazing. Provocative name. I love it. (laughs) And you know what? They engage at like the highest parliamentary levels. So you often hear ministers in the House of Commons saying, according to the charity, pregnant, then screwed, blah, 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 which always just makes me laugh. (laughs) But they have this excellent mentorship program for people who have dealt with this discrimination and are taking their employer to court. And they allowed us to work with those users. And so when we got into the guts of, okay, what do you really need? That's when we realized, okay, what we essentially need to build is case management software for the employee, not for the employer and their lawyer. Mm. And then everything kind of grew from there. I love it. I talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs and you all have taken this very strategic approach. You spent a lot of time assessing the market. And I think it's just a testament to the experiences that you had in the startup world. I imagine that you probably worked in some businesses where they may not have done as much research. It was much strategic, I would say market research in order to really figure out what's the right fit. I mean, and it's hard and it's not sexy, right? Like that's not the sexy part. (laughs) Exactly. I find it very frustrating. My co-founder, she was the one who really held the line and kept us on that disciplined path. At one point I called it our planned existential crisis, because it was just like, we weren't allowed to build anything for a little while because we were going out and back to the customers. And I'm such a doer that I found it difficult at the time, but it paid off in dividends. Like, it's not to say that anything that I've described is easy in terms of funding it and in terms of dealing with the uncertainty all the time, but it really, really did pay off in terms of the insight that we got out of that process. Right. And I think that probably helped you. It sounds like you did a number of pivots or redirecting, but it was really based on the research. And imagine if you had built something and now you have to rebuild or start from scratch. Right. So kudos to your co-founder for really being like, we're going to do this in a very disciplined way. (laughs) And that's a real advantage for founders who aren't technical. Like my co-founder and I, we're both software developers or came from that background. We could have built a lot of stuff. But one, you don't need to these days. There are so many no-code tools out there that to test an idea, it's actually pretty irresponsible unless it's very deep tech to test an idea by building it yourself because you're investing so much time, infrastructure that just could be wrong. So better for some non-technical founders to not have that temptation as we did to go straight into build and actually to need to be able to use some of these tools to validate that idea first. I think that's great advice. I know a lot of people who are interested in building something, building a tech-enabled company, and often the first thing they're told is go find a tech founder, right? And so I think what you're saying is probably good news to a lot of people to really use their deep insights and their backgrounds in other areas because the building of the actual tech can come later. I could not agree more. And I agree. I really hope people listening to this who have told themselves that because they're not technical, they can't build a tech-enabled business. I hope they hear that because there are companies who get VC funding off the back of no-code iterations of their product. It's really depending on the kind of risk that your business needs to validate and test through. If it's primarily market risk, 
then the technology can come later. If you're not building anything technologically innovative, but you're going and you're innovating inside the market, inside the product offering, things like that, the commercial model, then the technology can wait and investors or whoever else is participating in your business will be much more excited about what have you validated in that market and that market understanding. Yeah, it really depends on the business. Great news, great advice. Everyone listen to Danae. She knows what she's talking about. She's in a software engineer who's telling you, wait to build. So we talked before about your fundraising process. You talked now about kind of how you all tested the market. But what would you say is one of the biggest challenges that you faced as you've been building your company? Fundraising is always incredibly difficult um, for people who are on that kind of VC path. Always start your process before you think you need to. If you want money in the bank at a certain date, you should be starting your process probably about nine months before or six at the absolute minimum. That has been really challenging this year. So I raised our pre-seed round in 2020. I think I opened the round just after lockdown. So that was March and did our first close in September. So that gives you an idea of the timescale. And the second close was in December. This year, I opened round in April and I'll probably close just after Christmas. And the markets have been very difficult for fundraising this year in particular. That has always been a big challenge and there are ways to try and mitigate that. But beyond that, I think those early stages, your investor, keeping your own faith and keeping the faith of your investors when you are iterating through those different models, when you're understanding your market, Who you choose to back you as a company really matters at those stages because an investor who doesn't understand early stage startups could have easily tried to push us to rush to revenue too quickly. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was our investors who were saying, don't rush to revenue, keep learning, keep focusing. It feels like you've got a great thing here. You just need to keep going. And they were, and we have pivoted fairly dramatically between models and things like that. And they've been super supportive in that. And I think that's because they really do understand very early stage. You know what? We're not starting bakeries here. If we started a bakery, we would know how to build a bakery because lots of people have built bakeries before. There is expertise out there and the best way to make money out of a bakery. But the kinds of companies that we're building, they're brand new markets, brand new products. They've never been done before. And so the playbooks aren't there. That's what venture capital funding is for. It's for not making money until you figure out the best way to tap into that market. Right. But saying that, sometimes the investors don't actually understand that. So <laughs> choosing the investors who do is, is so important for people. Great. Thank you for sharing that. We hear a lot about kind of the challenges for women in technology, women founders, especially as it relates to finding those investors. Has being a woman in tech been a challenge? Are there resources and investors out there who are specifically looking to fund women founders? I would say both are true. Statistically, it's harder. So All female-founded companies like mine receive less than 2% of all the venture capital that's deployed. And that number is actually going down, not up, in the last few years. I think if you have a man in your co-founding team, I think that number goes up to maybe just around 10% of all venture capital. So it's still not great, but it's not as bad as less than 2%. I think that the way that that manifests in terms of difficulty is you have less access to networks. So you have to network even harder. You get asked different kinds of questions when you pitch your business. The default is to be asked what could go wrong instead of how big could this be? 
It's hard not to notice sometimes when you've ticked every single box the investor has asked you to tick. And then at the end, they say, you know what, I just can't get myself convinced about this. So I'm going to have to pass. I can't quite put my finger on it. And you're like, mm, <laughs> I could probably put my finger on it. <laughs> Let me help you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the same time, there are a growing number of funds and angel networks and support systems specifically for women. And what has really amazed me is they don't just support you. They work their butts off to support you. So I'm in the portfolio of two different female-focused angel syndicates in the UK, and both of them are just tireless in their support for us. The reason I was out in San Francisco recently is because they sponsored me to go on a trade mission out there. The other portfolio has given incredible connections. They're there to support you. I think it's really about finding the people that get you immediately. I mean, the whole thing about fundraising is you usually know within the first 10 minutes or maybe half hour of a conversation if somebody's going to invest in you. And if they don't get it, the trick is to stop trying to convince them or stop trying to get them to get it. It's just to move on to the next person and to mm -hmm. find the people that just instantly get it because those are the ones who are going to invest straight away. It's a numbers game, really. And what I do now is I typically approach any female partner or female associate in a fund first. And I do go straight to the funds that I'm focused on female founders specifically, because I know that at least some of those hurdles should be removed for me. Right. It's interesting in this day and age, right, that that's still the struggle. When you talked about those who get it and those who don't, especially as you're focusing on workplace challenges, whether it be harassment. How do you get investors interested in that? It's a hard topic. It's something that a lot of people don't even acknowledge that happens, or they say you should be able to shake it off. If they believe it happens, they say like everyone has been through it, right? Like you have to get past it. How do you really talk about this in a way that helps people understand that this is an everybody problem. This is not an individual issue. This is actually an organizational issue. This is a systemic issue that needs to be addressed in order to improve the workplace or, yes. you know, make it a space where everyone feels welcome and safe. It's fascinating all the different responses I've gotten when I've told them about Vala. So listeners won't see it, but there's a sign behind me that says no sexist, no racist, no fascist. And that's based on a sign, a very discriminatory sign that was up here in the UK, which I won't repeat, but this is kind of like the modern twisting of that kind of racism. I specifically leave this up when I'm on calls because one of the first litmus tests is, does that make them uncomfortable? Some people really get uncomfortable with this. And then I go on to talk to them about what I do. And I've had one investor tell me that if my product existed, he wouldn't want to be in a room alone with me because he would be so afraid of being sued. And I was thinking, my God, what are you going to do? <laughs> I would say that a lot of the reaction that I get from people is like a discomfort and they don't know where to put it. And so often they turn that into advice to try and get me to help people resolve it before it has to get legal. I get that advice a lot. Why don't you build a business that helps people prevent it ever from getting legal? Because isn't it terrible that it has to get legal in the first place? I've thought very carefully about that, looked at those models as well. But the thing is, it does get legal in a lot of situations and people have no options. And so now what I typically tell people is, that's interesting. I think there is a way that we could expand into more preventative stuff later. But Right now, other people can be the carrot. We're going to be the stick. There's a place for that in the market. 
And again, if they get it, they get it. And if they don't, then I do not want to be effectively married to that person for the next 10 years or so of this business's journey. And so it's a quick way for me to understand they're not on board here. I have an incredibly diverse cap table of men and women of color, lots of white guys, middle-aged white guys who really get it and are incredibly supportive and a huge group of incredibly passionate women from all kinds of different backgrounds, startup experience, things like that, lawyers who understand this from kind of like a visceral perspective as well. But all of them care about the mission, which just required people who don't care about what we're doing just won't ever. There's still an opportunity, a commercial opportunity that is there. And it's a very exciting commercial opportunity. And I could probably just frame it that way to try and get other investors on board and tone down on some of the other aspects of it. But I don't think that it would be a sustainable, good relationship for either one of us. Right. What would you say is the accomplishment that you're most proud of thus far in your business? Oh, goodness. That's a great question. I don't know about you, but I'm never proud of anything. I just, I'm ready for the next thing. (laughs) It's never good enough. (laughs) So we launched our beta in April. So people started properly using the tool and going to court, representing themselves with our templates and our software in April of this year. And recently we've had a little flurry of amazing successes that have been happening. And one woman actually was in BBC News because her win was such a big deal. It was against a major supermarket. She'd represented herself from maternity discrimination. She was incredible. And that was a big ticket win. That was £60,000 she won in that case. But then there was another, it was a young man who represented himself and he won £2,500, which, you know, is a very small amount of money, relatively speaking, and it would never make the BBC. But what got me so excited about that was he won £2,500, but he only spent £250 with us. And that money was important to him. It was really necessary for him. And a lawyer's fees would have just instantly eaten up all of that. Mm. And so I love the idea that the hypothesis we had a few years ago that we could solve $1,000 problems, $2,000 problems. You know, there's so many more of those. Like you say, there's so many more $1,000, $2,000 kind of level problems than there are these $200,000 problems. To see that playing out and to see that it actually is affordable, that felt amazing. I love that. And mostly because at $2,500, it is in some cases about the money. So if it's restitution for lost wages and those things, but I can imagine there's a huge psychological win of one, this company did something wrong. They were held accountable. Now everyone knows about like there's the psychological pieces of it, you know, as the person who feels like they've been wrong. I'm not crazy. This was wrong and I've had my day. So when you talked about finding justice is one of the jobs to be done, right? They got justice. Yeah. And the money is great. But in this case, this person had a 10x return on their investment, right? So that's a great win. And I completely agree. The amount of people that, you know, when we first speak to them, one of the things that I'm very careful to say, because we do coaching on top of the document templates and things, and people will tell me their story and I'll always tell them, I believe you. And then kind of go on from there because there's so much doubt in this process. Our user research, when we were talking to these people, the amount of shame, doubt, self-recriminations, saying that it's probably my fault, I'm probably making a big deal out of nothing. 
it's just threaded through the whole experience. And, you know, I want this whole company to feel like somebody who's just there, who believes you, who is ready to support you and just wants you to do your best. And that's clearly how these people are starting to feel on the other side and, and getting validated by the courts then and saying, you know, I spoke to a judge about this. I presented my case. They agreed with me. That is huge confidence boost for people who have gone through some really terrible stuff. I wonder how many barristers you all are going to create. (laughs) I've thought about that exact thing. We're just opening up the side of the platform where people can check documents for people. They can coach them and stuff. And I know that what's going to happen is that my users are going to become those suppliers and those document checkers and those coaches. It's already starting to happen because they've learned so much through this process and they want other people to feel that way as well. Right. I love it. That's a great win. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Great, great, great win. As you think about throughout this journey in in Create Invala, as well as the other startups that you've been a part of, what are some of your lessons learned? Like, what are some of the things that either you wish you had known or now that you learned them, you want other people to know them so they don't have to go through the same lessons that you did? I think my first one is, it was only about four years ago, roughly, that it really got into my head that I could do this, that it wasn't like there was this special breed of person out there who could create companies and try and tackle big societal problems or big commercial problems, that it's just something that anyone who puts their mind to it can do. And I did that because I met through this program that I got onto I met a bunch of other female CEOs and I was the head of a department at the time. So I was pretty senior, but not like an executive. What really struck me was they were all dealing with the same problems that I was just at a different scale. And that was like this incredible aha moment for me where I was just like, oh my God, they're just like me. (laughs) I wish everyone could have that light bulb moment because I think there's so much potential and talent and fantastic ideas and experience in people who think, oh, I'm not X and therefore I can't do Y. There is nothing special about anyone who has done this except they got to the point where they realized that they could at least try. So I wish I had known that earlier because I probably could have done some of this earlier. The other thing that really didn't sink into me until a few years ago was how much of building a business is really networking, especially being a CEO is networking. I would say my number one responsibility as a CEO of a VC-backed startup is to raise money, either through VC, angels, or grants, or et cetera, and to create business opportunities. And the number one way that I do that is through networking. And so learning how to network and how to build connections and maintain that network is probably the most valuable skill that anyone who even has a passing fancy of doing something like this should build. But nobody tells you that. Or if they do, they kind of say it in an offhand way that just makes you think you're supposed to go to these events and like stare at each other awkwardly. And that's not what networking is at all. (laughs) So I wish that I had prioritized networking even earlier than I had because it pays off so massively. Great. Thank you for that. Since you brought up networking and you are originally from Tennessee, from the South, I'm also from the South as well. And now you live in Scotland. And you recently were out in California. Can you talk to us a little bit about the differences and how networking differs or is the same across these different parts of the world that you straddle? 
I know what networking looks like in the South, right? So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I find it fascinating. I almost have to get myself into the American mindset when I go and work in the States versus the British mindset. The big difference between the two in general in business is comfort with self-promotion. In general, you are expected and will fall behind in the States if you're not capable of really promoting yourself, your ideas, your accomplishments, and everything else. If you can't do it, you're just going to fall by the wayside because that is a skill that a lot of people have and it's the culture. That comes into networking as well because I would say in general in America, there's a lot more comfort, especially out in California, with people having a much more transactional conversation of essentially being kind of like, what can I do for you? What can you do for me? Not in a cold way, but in a kind of let's help each other out kind of way. Mm -hmm. I think one commonality that I've seen across those two cultures, Miami I was learning was even similar, but different again. California has a massive pay it forward kind of networking culture. Mm. And in Edinburgh, where I'm at in Scotland, it's very similar. London, I think it's an interesting community, London. I think it's a little bit more influenced by the kind of dog eat dog city, London city kind of culture. But certainly in Edinburgh, it's a massively like, let's help each other and not think about how it's going to do us any good right now, but just know that we're feeding into this incredible ecosystem and a rising tide will lift all boats. People are very generous with their time in both. You can ask people openly for advice in both of those systems. And I think when people hear networking, they often think this kind of transactional call, but often networking is asking someone for advice, offering support to someone who has asked for something. It's mentoring someone who's a step behind you and then finding out that their sister's mom does something really cool. Just wait for the universe to kind of give back. That's exciting because that's the way that I network across all the territories. But British people, not as good at self-promotion and could bristle. If somebody came in like 100 watt American self-promotion into a British culture, then it would probably be seen as overly arrogant rather than, wow, that's a crackerjack kind of a reaction. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just find it fascinating to see how you have to adjust in different environments. It's code switching. A lot of people have to code switch, and this is just another type of code switching. Right. Code switching has a lot of connotations, I would say. So it can be good and bad. It just depends on kind of your intent and the reason why you're doing it. And it helps you. So yeah, I mean, you grew up in this art as well. Even I, as a white woman, know that if I talk like this to people outside of Tennessee, that I ain't going to get taken seriously. I mean, I have the benefit of race on my side and still... I have to code switch out of that kind of an accent into my general American accent before I you know, moved away and got a British accent. It's just layers upon layers. And I agree. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's fun, but it's not fair when it's a necessity. Yeah. Sometimes people, when I say I'm from North Carolina and then people say, you don't sound like you're from North Carolina. And then I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What did you expect? Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And then I have to ask myself, like, what am I doing? As you think back to your childhood and the way you were raised, are there any aspects of your childhood that you feel helped kind of pave the way for you to, one, move across an entire ocean, right? Or to be able to succeed as an entrepreneur? I grew up in a family of incredible women. It was a very matriarchal family I lived in. And my people are country people. They were pioneer 
slash colonizer, depending on your context. My mom didn't have access to like running water internally until she went to college, like mm-hmm. mountain people. <laughs> so I grew up in this frontier kind of context in terms of survivalist, very individualistic. You just keep going on. You don't complain, that kind of stuff. And I think that served me very well to, as I describe it, kind of claw my way out of Tennessee and go somewhere else and deal with the stuff there. It stopped serving me when I got into my 30s and it became something that caused me a lot of stress and anxiety because there's only so long you can be that unkind to yourself and not take care of yourself before you start to burn out. But it got me really far and I can still call on it when I need to, but now I have a much more kind of balanced view. My Mima was widowed pretty early on in her life. And my mom was a single mom for a long time. And watching them navigate the world around them, they just kept going. Just watching them keep going, as you will know, what we do is really hard. And there are some really, really grim parts of it. And, you know, knowing that you've seen someone else just kind of be like, well, guess I got to keep going. <laughs> That's really valuable. Thank you for sharing a bit about your background. I'm sure your mom and Mima were great women, right? <laughs> So, Danae, there's two questions I ask every guest. And the first question is, what are one or two songs that are on your power playlist and why? I loved this question. (laughs) I've got a dance party for one playlist. I think the first song on it is Bodak Yellow. And then I think the next song on there, I think it's Get Your Freak On. I don't care too much about the content so much as like that it keeps me moving and like gets me kind of into the right energy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Actually, although Bodak Yellow is a fantastic song for kind of like as me against the world. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And what is one book that you would say has helped you thrive in business? God, I am such an avid reader. So it's very hard to narrow it down to one. If I go back to that mindset that served me and then stopped serving me, because I think that's really where I started the journey where I actually felt like I could do something like this. It was a book called The Compassionate Mind. And it was all about learning how to be compassionate with yourself when you are a massive overachiever who tends to burn out all the time and doesn't allow yourself to fail at any cost. (laughs) And the thing is, to be a business owner, you can't sustain that kind of mindset. It can get you started, but it you cannot sustain it and it will burn you out. And the thing is, like, if I burn out today, I have six employees. That's six mortgages that need to be paid. I don't have the luxury of just not looking after myself. And that book really started me on a journey of trying to understand how to work with my own brain to create sustainable energy to do the things that I wanted to do rather than this kind of like short term energy that I had relied on for so long. Right. Well, great. Thank you for sharing that, Danae. That is one that I have not heard of. So this is definitely going on my reading list. If our listeners want to connect with you or learn more about you, how can they find you? Absolutely. So I'm Danae Shell on Twitter, on LinkedIn as well. And you can also find me on TikTok. It's Vala.uk on TikTok. Especially if you're in the UK, it's worth a follow because we do a lot of helping people understand where they're in their situation. So if you want to learn about what we do, follow us on Vala. If you want to learn about more of the business side, follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. So I would say check out Danae's TikTok videos. They are great for uh, legal advice about employment situations and they're lots of fun. Thank you so much. Well, Danae, thank you so much for 
being with us today. I have learned a lot from fundraising to building a startup without having to be a technical founder and just really some of the highs and lows of building a business that is focused on a really challenging issue and that actually helps people solve their problems in a way that they can afford them. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. for listening to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business podcast. If you like this episode, share it with a friend and then join the conversation on social media and let us know what you learned or what resonated for you. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Until next week, keep thriving.